0: Let's ask God to help us with his word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather uh, today, uh, that we can sing your praise, that we can come to you in prayer, that we can remember the death of your son, and that we can hear your word. Give us hearts to listen, to hear what you say, to understand and believe it. And through your word, please strengthen our trust in our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, and fill us with thankfulness. We ask this in his name. Amen. Not a hope. Uh, You hear that said from time to time about a competitor in some competition. I think it's what they've been saying about Carlton uh, most of the year. Not a hope. Uh, I suspect it's what you would say of me if I told you I was going to cycle the Tour de France, even before you saw my profile in Lycra. Not a hope. And it's what an unbiased observer would have said about Israel's occupying Canaan. Dispossessing nations greater and mightier than them, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Israel had neither the technological sophistication nor military prowess to defeat well-descended positions whose soldiers had strength that was proverbial. Who can stand before the sons of Anak? Not a hope. And I guess it's what you might be tempted to say when, knowing yourself, knowing me, you thought, of the possibility that you or I would be able to live forever with a holy and just God, live forever in the new heaven and earth. Not a hope. Yet Israel did have a hope, a hope given to them by the Lord, a hope in the Lord. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Moses calls Israel to know that despite their own weakness compared to the Canaanites, they have a sure hope, a sure hope of possession because the Lord has committed himself to do for them what they could not do for themselves, drive out the Canaanites. Now, why does the Lord give them this assurance? And why can they rely on it? It's important for them to know that because they're on the banks of the Jordan River. They've come to the point of decision. Will they make their plans, direct their course, cross the Jordan, engage in deadly battle with hostile and more powerful nations on the basis of God's promise, will they, or not? And it's important for us to know that we can rely on the Lord's assurance on his promise. For Jesus calls us to direct our lives, make our plans be distinct from the society around us on the basis of his commitment to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to raise us from the dead and to bring us to live in the new heaven and earth. We need to know the Lord's commitment. His promise is reliable because... Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, which is, which is not there. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. No resurrection, no fulfilment of the promise, and the whole Christian gig is a miserable dud. So why can the commitment of the Lord be relied upon? And on what basis does he make his commitment, his promise to Israel? Well, Moses gives them a surprising, even discouraging answer in verse 4 and following. He starts by telling them what is not the reason the Lord has made this commitment to them, what they can't rely on. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. The Lord is clear. He's not committed to giving them the land because they are good or at least relatively better than the Canaanites, the present possessors of the lands. Possession of the land is not a reward for their righteousness or moral superiority. No, the nations of Canaan will be driven out for their wickedness. Now, as the driving out and destruction of the Canaanites is an issue for some, a kind of belief blocker, let's pause and think about God's judgment on the Canaanites. Let's think first about the reality of the driving out of the nations. As we learnt in Deuteronomy 7, this driving out was about destroying the infrastructure, the shrines and statues of idolatrous religion in the land so that the Lord's sole sovereignty over the land would be established and there would be no competitor for the loyalty of the Lord's people. And we're told in Deuteronomy 7.22 that it would be gradual, that he'll clear these nations away little by little. So there's time for escape. But for those who would not leave, there would be total destruction. Now, we find that destruction hard to understand, because we are focused on individual, on the individual and religion as a private, personal choice. But it would have made sense to ancient peoples as a collective, uh, who saw themselves as a collective and their religion as tribal. And their religion was the currency of their relationship with the gods that you had to use to be a member of the tribe just as today you have to use the currency of a country to participate in its economy, they were all in. And here we learn clearly that that dispossession was just. They were judged, God says, for their wickedness. Now, that judgment wasn't some kind of impetuous reaction to a small fault. Now, we're told, Genesis 15, that God had waited patiently for change, waited because the sin of the Amorites was not yet complete. And Leviticus 18 and 20, and you can look it up recount some of their sinful practices, things it says God hates and for which the land vomited them out. They are engaging in all kinds of sexual immorality, sexual exploitation and even, verse 21, child sacrifice. Now, our society tends to call sins some small naughtiness and thinks that we can separate ourselves from our sins. I may abuse you, but I am not an abuser. But sin is not an accident, something that can be separated from us. It comes from our hearts. Our sin is both a condition and a behaviour. It describes who we are as well as what we do. And sin's not just an idea or concept. It's real things we do and say and think having real consequences. Sin is serious and ugly, distorting, destroying, impoverishing, oppressing people. And God's word says he is the just judge of all the earth. So this judgment of the nations of Canaan Is an expression of God's judging. It's a type of God's final judgment. But it's also a reminder to us that the Lord is active in history to carry out his just judgments on sin. And for that reason, our society is very hostile to God's action here. It's not just because this judgment is collective and awesome, it's also because we are increasingly accepting of the sexual practices condemned in Leviticus. We share those sins and don't want to think they will have consequences. And we are hostile as a society to the very idea of judgment, hostile to the thought God judges us because that's a threat to our practice of behaviours we love and claim a right to do And it marks the failure of our rebellious idolatry where we put ourselves in the place of God. Judgment blows that lie away. And we're hostile to the thought that God is active now in history to execute his judgments because we don't want to think that we have to live conscious now of God and his judgments, take them into account in our decision-making. Our culture has sadly insulated itself from the reality of judgment through embracing, amongst other things, the folly of single explanations. Where because, for example, we know drought is the outcome of climatic patterns, climatic patterns it cannot also be because God has decided to punish us as a society for our so evident sins. Now, believers shouldn't fall for that. Jesus taught us that the sun's rise, for which we have a credible explanation in the earth's rotation on its axis as it orbits around the sun, that the sun's rise is also the Lord's work. It's not either or, but both and. And the real tragedy is that in the face of the hostility of our society to judgment, many believers seem to have become embarrassed about it. We have gone quiet on it. Now that's understandable because it's less distressing to not have to think friends and family will face judgement. And by becoming silent we are less different and less criticised and we have less need to disrupt our lives by telling others about it. But the cost of going quiet on this gospel truth that the Lord is the active judge now and at the end is that we become less concerned with holiness, for we forget how serious God is about sin, and then less in awe of the cross, of reckoning with the full cost of salvation. And so we know less gratitude. Our lives are impoverished. Our embarrassed silence is a tragedy in a society that deserves judgment and where we know how to escape judgment. God judges nations and individuals for their wickedness. It is the clear lesson of the scripture. We ought to believe that and pray that we will live different lives, the lives of those who know they will give account to the just and holy God. We ought to pray that the Lord would raise up faithful gospel preachers and that they will get a hearing and pray that through the gospel God will save many from... Judgment. Some of us may disagree with the means by which Israel Falau raised the issue with his Twitter followers, but shouldn't we be grateful for the opportunities he's given us to have serious conversations about sin and judgment and forgiveness? And if you are tempted to criticise him for what you think is his clumsiness, do you think the Lord will be more pleased with you if you never warn your friends and family? of a reality the gospel convicts us of, especially where we are raising it to share the way of escape. The Jesus who saves us is the Jesus who can save them. But the point Moses is making is that Israel... So that was a long excursus, but hopefully edifying. Feel free to talk to me about it. Uh, But the point Moses is making is that Israel must not think it is their righteousness that has earned the Lord's commitment to them, made them deserving of his action on their behalf, for they are not righteous, verse 5, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart. They can't even console themselves that they meant to do well, even if they might have failed in the execution. In fact, verse 6, he tells them they are exactly the opposite, You are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. This is Israel, stubborn. People who persevere in doing what they want, not what the Lord commands. Rebellious, provoking the Lord to wrath. And in case they missed this assessment of them, Moses repeats it in chapters 9 and 10. Four times he calls them stubborn. Actually, it's the Lord's verdict. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stubborn people. Twice more he repeats that they are rebellious. Rebellious from the day that Moses knew them. And he lists those times they provoked the Lord to anger by their disobedience. Tabera, Massa, Kibroth, Is he being harsh? No, he's just being realistic. Their stubbornness and rebellion is clearly evidenced, repeatedly evidenced in their behaviour. <laughs> to see how ingrained it is, he says, Look where it started verse 8, Moses took them back to Sinai. His recollection of those events is vivid as you heard. He takes them back to how when they had heard the Lord speak to them directly, how when they had committed themselves to living his way, doing the covenant, how as soon as Moses had gone up on the mountain to receive the written copy, the permanent copy of the covenant, they'd done exactly the opposite of what the Lord had commanded and they'd committed themselves to, they had made and worshipped an idol, the golden calf. Now Israel's behaviour can only be compared to a husband who on his honeymoon visits a prostitute while his new wife is out shopping. And it wasn't the only instance of unfaithfulness. Moses, as I've said, lists these other examples. Taborah, Massa and yes, the episode of rebellion on the border of the land with which he started the book of Deuteronomy. Now, each place name stands for an incidence of disobedience, grumbling and complaining about food or water or how tough it was, doubting the Lord's goodness and power. So the Israelites can't come back and say to Moses, look, you're just putting everything in the worst possible light. There really is a better explanation. We are not that bad, really. No, they are stubborn in their unfaithfulness, rebellious, deliberately defying the Lord's command, fully deserving of the Lord's wrath. Their behaviour actually threatened the very existence of the covenant which is seen in Moses shattering the stone tablets as he comes down from the mountain. Oh, and it threatened their continuity as a nation. The reality is they are more of a threat to the fulfilment of God's promise to them than the pagan nations are. It's not the sons of Anak that will keep them out of the land. It is their own constant provocation of the Lord. How can God keep his promise to them when they bring upon themselves by their own actions his wrath and judgement? And before we leave Moses' blunt statement of their lack of righteousness, their deserving of judgment, before we answer how Israel can be confident that the Lord will keep his commitment to them, we have to recognise that we, you and I, are like Israel. We are no better than them. If we have a hope of eternal life, it is not because of our righteousness. That's the scripture's verdict, isn't it? All have sinned. And that's not trivial and it's actually the lived experience of New Testament Christians. Paul, that this infamous 1 Corinthians 6, lists all kinds of sins, sexually immorality, idolatry, adultery, uh, homosexual practice, thieves, greedy drunkards. And he says, such were some of you. Oh, and it wasn't just the Corinthians. This is Paul speaking to the Cretans. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But that changed when the goodness and kindness of God our Saviour appeared. It's the verdict of Scripture. We are not righteous. And it's not just the verdict of Scripture. If we're honest, it's our lived experience. I expect we can all look back, before we believed. Even those of us who grew up in Christian homes and so might have been shielded from some of the worst excesses of our society, I suspect we can all look back and see in our lives sexual immorality, greed, lying, pride. I can. And it's not just before we believed, is it? After becoming Christians, even now, we know we sin whether it's giving way to anger and bitterness, secret lust, greed, envy, whatever. We are the threat to coming to the fulfilment of what the Lord has promised us, just like Israel. So how can they have a hope? How can we? Well, how was it that Israel continued to be God's people after the golden calf incident? Why weren't they destroyed? Well, Moses, verse 18, records his pleading with the Lord on the mountain. He interceded for them. And what was the content of his appeal? On what grounds did he ask the Lord not to destroy Israel as they deserve to be destroyed? Well, he tells us in verses 25 to 29 a slightly fuller account of the content of his appeal than is found in Exodus 33. And it has a recurring theme. Listen as I read it. To you and your. So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember, your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, do not regard the stubbornness of these people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought them say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Moses appealed to the Lord's past action, his rescue of Israel. He appealed to the Lord's ownership, the fact that he's entered into a relationship with them, that Israel are his and known to be his. And verse 28, he's appealing to the Lord's proper concern for his reputation, how he would be slandered and misrepresented as being like the dumb idols or worse, as malevolent if the people died in the wilderness. So what does Moses appeal to? The Lord's gracious identification of himself with this people, that the Lord has tied his glory, his reputation to their salvation, to doing for them what he has promised. It would be dreadful, unthinkable, Moses says, that the world would not know the truth of God, would not know that the Lord Lord is the living God whose word is always fulfilled. And the Lord heard Moses' prayer, despite the appalling rebellion of Israel. And we know that because they're here listening to Moses on the border of the Promised Land. You see, it is an extraordinary thing that the Lord would identify his reputation with our salvation, tie his glory to his fulfilling of his promise to his people. But the Lord has And that is the security and hope of his people. But why would the Lord Almighty, the Holy God, tie his reputation to such sinful people, people he knows are stubborn and rebellious? Why cause himself such provocation and grief? Well, Moses mentioned it at verse 27, Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And he returns to it at verse 14 behold the lord your god to the lord your god belong heaven and the heaven of heavens the earth and all that's in it he's the creator and ruler of all yet the lord set his heart on love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them now this is the theme that moses has spoken of throughout these speeches remember back in chapter 7 he said to the israelites verse 7 It's not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. Why do these people have a hope? Because of God's choosing of their fathers, making a promise to them, and in choosing them, choosing their offspring. His Gracious promise. They have no other reason to have a hope. And why did he make that choice of their fathers? It was because he loved them. He freely, sovereignly chose to set his love upon them. So, why can sinful, rebellious Israel have a hope, a sure hope? Well, it's the Lord's decision to love, expressed in his gracious, merciful, commitment to them in his promise and covenant and then his determination to be true to himself and have his truth known you see that they and we could have a sure hope because of him who he is not them but there's a problem did you hear it as it was being read do you feel the problem Think about verse 17. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who's partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice. Hear that? The Lord says he executes justice as he said he will do on the Canaanites (coughs) and he does it impartially. And Israel is wicked like the Canaanites. In fact, The Lord's already said that if they became like them, chapter 8, they would suffer the same fate. So how can they be confident of life in the land? How, How could they be treated differently, escape judgment? Well, we are wicked. How can we be treated differently? Won't bringing sinful Israel into the land trash the Lord's reputation just as much as giving them what their sins deserve, destroying them will trash his reputation? Won't saving Israel mean he can only love, only keep his promise at the expense of his justice, make his judgment seem arbitrary, and then how can he be judge of all the earth? Oh, and and won't that having to abandon his justice to promote his people... Actually just reduce the Lord to being just another tribal God, just promoting his people so his people will promote him, dependent on them for his presence, more concerned for their ritual honouring of him than their hearts and lives that they live just and righteous lives. I oh, won't abandoning his justice make him a diminished God, not the God of the whole earth, a God we could never trust, unless we'd somehow bribed him to be on his good side. How could the Lord save Israel and be true to his name, his revelation of himself? How could he save them and not have his glory tarnished by them? How could he save you and I and still be the God we can trust, always true and faithful, always separate from and opposed to the destroying, life-denying people using sin we practice. How can we have a sure hope? Well it's because Christ is better is greater than Moses. Hebrews tells us Moses was faithful yes but as a servant interceding on the basis of God's action and promise administering his revelation. But Christ is the son in the house not the servant. That's right, Jesus is God. He is is God's revelation of himself, the one in whom we know God. He is God himself acting to save. Jesus is God being faithful to his character in saving and at the same time, God acting to preserve his reputation before his enemies. That is what is happening on the cross. That's right, on the cross, here is God's justice, sin being punished as it deserves with death. Here is God saving, delivering from death by atoning for sin. Here is God's extraordinary love, going beyond anything that could be expected or asked for. Here is God's faithfulness, keeping his promises. At the cross we meet, in Jesus, the thoroughly good God. Not malicious but God for us. Loving us at the cost of the death of his son. And sometimes we talk as if these things are just ideas but the cross is real blood, real humiliation, real shame, real pain, real grief for the real incarnate son. Done for us to keep his promise to be loving and Just to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to bring life for our death as we are joined to Jesus in his death and rising. Do you see, do you let yourself feel the wonder of the cost God pays to set his love on his people, to make his promise and keep it to sinful people? The cost God pays to give you assurance that what he has promised to give you resurrection life as you trust Jesus is sure. Do you have a hope? There is only one in whom we can have hope. That's the God who is true, Father, Son and Spirit, true to himself and so true in all he says and promises. The God who graciously loves, who freely shows mercy, while always being the just and holy God, who will not allow his glory to be tarnished by failing to be himself or do what he says. The God who deserves all our praise for who he is, loving and just, faithful and true, almighty. The God who deserves the worship of our whole lives as the fruit of our faith in the gospel, that Christ, the Son of God, has died for our sins. And this is what Moses calls for from the people. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. We love and serve our God as we progress through life by doing what he says in all areas of life And while Israel failed, this is what God makes possible in the new covenant, that circumcised heart that will be given to do God's will, where the law is written on our hearts so that we delight in loving what our God loves and we hate what he hates. And there is just one aspect of our response to God's grace I want to draw your attention to this morning. Because the Lord emphasises it by singling it out. From all the generalities, he makes this specific. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Do you hear that? The Lord wants his people to come to love those who are like them, sojourners in the way God has loved them, protecting, providing, rescuing. Now, believer in Jesus, in response to the Lord's grace that has given you a sure hope of eternal life, the Lord wants you to love those who are like you in the way God has loved you. Who is like you? Well, Scripture says that God loved you as a sinner. God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Lord wants you to show love to sinners in the way that he has loved you, a sinner. And how has he loved you? Well, he has sought you. You should seek. He has called you through his word. You should share the word in which you have come to know his love and life. He has forgiven you. You must forgive those who repent. And he deals patiently with you. So shouldn't you be patient in your love, even with those who don't want to hear you? Not a hope? No, believer. If you're a believer in Jesus, you and I have every hope of coming to share in the resurrection, of being spared that judgment that sinners like us deserve. Why? Why do we have that sure hope? Well, not because of our goodness, absolute or relative. It's because the Lord, Father, Son and Spirit, has committed himself to saving all those who believe in Jesus. He has joined his glory to doing for you what he has promised to you in Christ. Why has he made that commitment? It's because of who he is, because he loves. And the measure of that love, and it is great, is the giving of his son. And in that giving he has shown that he will always be himself, the true God, just and righteous, faithful, almighty, the God of steadfast, faithful love, the only saving God, the God we can rely on completely, the God who is worthy of all our praise and service forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word teaches us that for the fulfilment of your promise to us, that wonderful promise, that we will rise with Christ to the new heaven and earth, that your word teaches us that we can have confidence in you where we can have no confidence in ourselves. We thank you that you are faithful and true to your commitments. We thank you that in being faithful and true, you have revealed who you are. Holy God, the just God who does deal with wickedness and yet the loving and faithful God who keeps his promise to his people even at the cost, the great cost of the death of the Son of God. We thank you that our hope can be in you and we pray in your mercy that we would respond as your word calls us to, to love you with all our heart, mind, soul and strength and to love the neighbour who is so like us, to love the neighbour by sharing the good news of your goodness, your love, your holiness, sharing the good news of the gospel of your Son with all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.